Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. This is Caffeinated Crimes. I'm really bad with intro, guys. I'm sorry. I'm going to try out some different phrases. We'll see what happens. Let us know what you like. I suggested telling a joke, but I don't think Jacqueline liked my office reference joke. <laughs> Go ahead and tell your joke, Courtney. Does it smell like up dog in here? What's up, dog? Ah, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so this is oh, cheesy corner. We're just going to randomly tell a joke from the office. <laughs> I mean, let us know if you guys like that or let us know if you hate that and you don't want us to ever do that again. Understandable, because so. I think I kind of hated myself after saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll figure it out. But we have some true crime news this week, guys. Coming in hot. It is very sad true crime news, Um, so I do want to give a little uh, trigger warning for child abuse. Um, So my dad calls me this week, and my dad calls me every single Sunday, and he calls me on like, was like Tuesday, Wednesday, I don't, days Mm -hmm. run together, but it was a weeknight. And I was like, that's weird, why is my dad calling me during the week, like, is everything okay? And so he calls me on video chat, so I answer, and he was like, I have a story for you. And I'm like, (laughs) oh boy, okay, tell me, tell me. So this man that my dad knows, his parents were arrested because they discovered the remains of their 10-year-old adopted daughter buried in their backyard. So Courtney and I discussed it. I don't think we're going to give too many details right now because it is an ongoing investigation. But just in general, there were a couple of teenage kids walking down the road and they were looked kind of disheveled and so somebody called child protective services who found another child locked in the basement um there was a cage in the basement the basement was partially flooded and then further investigation led to the discovery of the remains of this 10 year old girl that died around 2017 and um the man that my dad knows they dug up his backyard and also found the remains of a boy who died around 2015-2016 um, and these were all children that his parents had adopted so yeah that's just horrific because like I've told Kevin like sometimes you know when you're driving and you're like looking and you're like what if somebody's like locked in that basement like in that house like you know mm-hmm. what I mean like you're like someone could be but now I'm gonna be like oh my god what if they buried somebody in their yard yeah like it's just horrific and imagine if you were like like I know your dad knows him but isn't like super mm-hmm. close friends but, like what if he'd yeah. like gone over to his house and like hung right? out and you're like oh my god like I had no idea and yeah it's crazy. And all of these kids were homeschooled, so there was no... So once they were adopted and, you know, Child Protective Services was no longer involved in their lives, there's no one to, like, check on these kids and make sure that everything's okay. And so it just makes you think about how many other cases that this could be happening where children don't have any contact with the outside world, especially right now in the time of corona when school's been indefinitely canceled. And... You know, who knows how many other cases like this are going to come forward later because no one knew these kids existed, you know? Yeah, it reminds me of the Hart family. It's the one um, somewhere on the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, California, one of those. And it was like they had the two moms and they'd adopted all the kids and then they drove the car off the... I listened to a podcast on that, um, which was pretty good, but I mean... The podcast was good, not the crime. Yeah. Just just obviously. so nobody can, misconstrues my words, y'all. I'm not, 
I've seen these big podcasts who get a lot of shit for little things. Say one word wrong and one word they're wrong. on you. So, so y'all um, know what we mean, okay? Y'all know. Um, but yeah, it just kind of reminds me of that because I think it was very similar where they were like homeschooled and like mm-hmm. didn't have really much interaction with the outside world, and then like investigating it, they were like. The neighbors were like, yeah, it's kind of like they wouldn't feed them and like all this stuff. So it's just, I don't know. Children are very vulnerable. They can't mm-hmm. really take care of themselves. They can't get jobs. They can't do that. So please just take care of your children if you have them. <laughs> please don't lock them in the basement. Yes, and take care of other people's children in a general sense. Not saying, you know, go over and steal their children. But look out for other children, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, just kind of be aware of your surroundings and if something feels wrong, then do something about it. And, and not saying that there was ever a case where someone could have done something about this, but maybe there was, maybe there was a time that something seemed off to someone, but they didn't want to get in their business and yeah. And good for this person for being like, things look off. I'm going to call because yeah, those are anonymous, right? Like they don't really ever tell who calls. Correct. I know. CPS workers are very overloaded, and so sometimes the process can be slow and stuff, but just do it just in case. Like, <laughs> Yep, I'm pretty sure we've gone on this rant before, but I'm going to do it again because it's been a while, and also maybe you didn't listen to that episode, and also it's just important, but... Um, and, and laws vary by states, but in a lot of states, every adult is a mandatory reporter of child abuse and neglect. Um, some states, it's just people like teachers and you know, social workers, nurses, people like that. But in some states, officers, yes. yeah. and in some states it is everyone, but whether or not your state mandates it, you should consider yourself to be one. Um, but it's not your job to prove abuse or neglect. That's the job of CPS. So basically all you're doing is putting a suspicion out there and then you've done your job and then you can sleep at night knowing that you did what your responsibility was. So, and don't feel that you're going to get someone in trouble because if there's nothing there, then there's nothing there, and then they move on. I mean, CPS's goal isn't to come and take your kids, so if you feel that there's something off and you want to make a report but you're afraid of getting that person in trouble, if everything is fine, they're going to find that, and then nothing's going to happen, so it's going to be okay. Yeah, and it's not like they just run in, grab the kids, and then leave and say <laughs> goodbye. Like, it, it's pretty, like, a long process to, like, actually, like... Unless things are just so severe, like in this case, like I'm sure those kids were like, yes. okay, nope, we're going to take you out of here. Um, Absolutely. In which case, you're glad that you called and did so. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, most times, like, it takes many visits, it takes many, yes. like, stuff like that, and, you know, all that. So just just look out for people. So that's our little rant. Yes, I have a lot of firsthand experience in this um, with my career, and it does not happen quickly or most times at all, that they take yeah. the children. So just keep that in mind. Again, it's going to have to be really bad for them to go down that route, in which case it's good that they do. So that's the end of that soapbox. Yeah, because I know a girl who, like, her husband, like, had a kid with someone else, and there's been some clear neglect, uh-huh. not good things happening. And even then, like, the court is still yep. giving her visitation rights, and... CPS can't really take the kid away, so it's like, it is like a very hard process, but if you can get that process started, if you think something's happening, that's just better for the kid. So we'll give you more updates on that case as we have them. I'm sure it's going to be in the news for quite a while to come, so 
we'll make sure and let you know yeah. about those updates. Um, and if there's enough information, hey, we'll do a whole podcast yeah. episode on it. Yeah, that'll, whew, that'll be a tough one. Um, so today we originally started out doing research for one case and we just couldn't find a whole lot of information on it. So we decided to do kind of a, another themed episode, but we're only doing two cases because we do have more information than like our vigilante justice series, but not enough for like a whole episode. Yeah. So we're doing two prisoners who recently died from COVID-19 while in prison. So we are telling their original stories of why they're in prison and then um, getting a little bit into current climate around COVID in our prison system right now. So it was a, it was a tough one. It was a tough research. Yeah. So, yeah. And this first case um, was sent to us by our friend Tiffany. So thank you, Tiffany. Um, And this is going to be about Susan Farrell. So all of my information from this case came from um, the Detroit Free Press. So the first article is the original article from when this happened in 1989, and then a couple of articles recently about her death. So at 1.30 a.m. on April 14th, 1989 in Oakland County, Michigan, a man named Terry Farrell is bludgeoned to death in his bed by a sledgehammer. Um, and it took between four and eight blows to kill him. And when the police arrive, his wife Susan is covered in his blood and tells police that she woke up to an intruder murdering her husband while they were both in bed, and then the intruder left. So, at the time of the murders, um, in the home, there was also Susan's 23-year-old son, um, who is currently an an unemployed former Marine named Robert Baker, and her 14-year-old daughter, Tara Farrell. Um, so Robert is her son from her first marriage, and then her daughter Tara is her and Terry's child together. Mm-hmm. Um, so Robert's girlfriend Teresa um, speaks to the police after this happens and tells them that Susan's husband had been abusing her and that Susan and Robert had been conspiring together to kill him for about two months. And Teresa tells police that she was waiting outside the house in Robert's car the night that he came out covered in blood carrying a bloody sledgehammer and that they drove to a gas station in Macomb County, which I looked that up on Google Maps and it's around 40 minutes away um, from Oakland County. So they drove to a gas station there so that he could change clothes and then they drove to the Clinton River where he dropped the sledgehammer in the water. Um, So police go and investigate and they do recover the sledgehammer where Teresa said it was. Mm -hmm. Um, So then Susan and Robert are both arrested on first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder charges. Robert was also arrested for the unrelated statutory rape of a 13-year-old. Ooh, how old was he? 23. Ooh, no, that's not a good look, Robert. Not a good Mm -mm. look. Mm -mm. And, Courtney, I don't know if you know this, but at what age do they consider switching it from, like, forcible rape to statutory rape? So, it depends. Okay. There's a lot of different little levels. Usually, statutory rape, which I find weird, that's usually like a three to four age dif- like age, dif- year yeah. age difference. That was my understanding. Like, So, if like a 21-year-old with like a 17-year-old, mm-hmm. stuff like that, where it's a little still abusing your, your power yeah. probably, but still kind of like, well, you could have been in a relationship yeah. kind of thing. Um, if it's a 10-year difference, that should have been, like, aggravated statutory rape, aggravated sexual battery, something. It yeah, should have been higher. That was my thought. But that is in Tennessee, and this is what year? This is 1989 in Michigan. 1989 in Michigan, so probably 
it was lesser, I assume, because I feel like in the past it was always just like, eh, whatever. Like, yeah. So I'm just like, did this 13 year old be like, oh no, like he's my boyfriend. I had sex with him. And yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to look up the laws in Michigan yeah. and see, but I know in Tennessee, um, usually just statutory rape is like three to four year age difference. So yeah. And maybe it's something that they pled down later. Like it doesn't really say that's true also. Yeah. What he was initially arrested for. I don't know. Especially if the victim like didn't want to come forward or he just took a plea deal. Cause he was like, yeah, I'm whatever I'm going to get. If I go to trials like 10 times worse. <laughs> yeah. True. So that's what's going on with him. Um, so after they're arrested, so the day of their preliminary hearing, um, his girlfriend, Teresa, is set to testify. So she gets on the stand, she answers her name, and then she refuses to answer any other questions. So, and the police are like, okay, we had no idea that she wasn't going to answer our questions. They're like, she had never said that, she had never given any kind of indication that she wasn't going to mm-hmm. actually testify. Um, the prosecutor said that no deal had been made with Teresa in exchange for her testimony. Um, So they're like, okay, is she going to implicate herself in some way if she testifies? And is that why she's not going to testify? Yeah. Um, And so Teresa's brother Marvin testified that Teresa gave him Terry Farrell's wallet the morning after the murders. And then he then pled the fifth and refused to answer any further questions. So if you're not familiar with the United States Constitution and judicial system, basically the Fifth Amendment protects you from um, self-incrimination. So if you on the stand will incriminate yourself, you do not have to answer any questions, basically. Yeah, and that that is as well in police interviews too, I'm pretty sure. Yes. So if they're like, oh, so you, you took the wallet, I plead the Fifth, like I'm not gonna put myself yep. in this or whatever. Exactly. So. Um, So that brings up the question of what these two siblings had to do with this murder. Yeah, but also pleading the fifth also kind of makes you look guilty because it's like, well, what are you not saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it goes both ways. Like, it does protect you and they can't say anything. But if anyone followed, like, the O.J. Simpson trial, we all know that was a huge thing (laughs) with Mark Furman. Yeah. And it gives them more reason to investigate into, you know, other things. Yeah. So Tara Farrell, which was the 14-year-old daughter, testified that her parents sometimes fought, but that they appeared to be in good moods when they went to bed the night of the murder. Um, And during the trial, the prosecution claims that Susan is the one who murdered her husband because she wanted his um, life insurance policy, which would have been $400,000 in 1989 money. So they are tried separately. So again, they're both being tried for murder and conspiracy to commit murder charges. So during Robert Baker's trial, his attorneys, um, like I said, claimed that Susan had been the one to murder her husband for the insurance payout, and they said that Robert just helped cover it up afterwards. So they're not denying that he had any knowledge of it, but they're saying she's the one that swung the hammer. He just helped her. Yeah. So on December 13th, 1989, after six hours of deliberation, his jury finds him not guilty of murder, but did find him guilty of conspiracy and being accessory after the fact. And so he was sentenced to 30 to 60 months, but then he was convicted separately on the statutory rape charges and served a total of five years for those three charges. So not, I mean, any time in prison probably feels long, but not really that long compared Mm -mm. to what you could have (laughs) gotten. Yeah. So then at Susan's trial, so Susan says that Robert and Terry got into an argument over money that night and that Robert went to the garage, got the sledgehammer, 
walked into his stepdad's bedroom and struck him in the head. She said that her son then threatened her and said that if she told anyone that he's the one that did it, he would tell them that she told him to because he was abusing her. So Susan admits to smearing her husband's blood on her face, body, and nightgown, the night that her husband was killed before the police arrived because she wanted to make it look like they were in bed together when an intruder came in and killed her husband because she was trying to protect her son. Which also was just kind of a bad story. Like, if an intruder comes in and kills your husband while you're in bed with him, he'd probably kill you, too. Yeah. Like, why would he not I'm not telling you? people how to make up stories, <laughs> but it just seems, like, yeah. kind of iffy, you know, to be like, we were both there and I'm, I'm fine. It's like, really? It's like, oh, he saw I was awake and he ran? I don't know. But, I mean, if this is what happened, if it really was her son and she's trying to protect him... and Then it makes total sense, You yeah. only have a short amount of time before the police get there. You don't really have time to think of yeah. this whole in-depth story, you know. So, on February 6, 1990, she was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy charges and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, and so, at the time, she was either 42 or 44. I found two different ages on two different articles by the same newspaper, so I'm not completely sure, <laughs> but around that age. So, she did request commutation in 2018, um, which is kind of like a pardon, but not exactly. So, basically, a pardon just, like, completely dismisses all charges versus commutation kind of lowers the charges. Um, so, basically, they're like, look, she's old. She's not going to harm anyone you know, supposedly she, according to those that convicted her, she murdered her husband because he was abusive. So they're like, look, this, is, this isn't this is going to happen again. You know, can we reduce her charges so that she can get out? Because remember, she is serving life without the possibility of parole. Yeah. So during the clemency hearing, Susan said that her husband had physically and sexually abused her throughout their entire marriage and that she even had a vaginal prolapse and a bowel prolapse after he raped her with an object. Oof. And she says that she never killed her husband, nor did she ask her son to do it, but she still claims that her son is the one that killed her husband. And at his trial, her son and his brother both testified that they had witnessed their stepfather hitting their mother, once even hitting her over the head with a lamp while she was pregnant. So there is documentation from 1989 from others that he had been abusing her as well. Mm-hmm. So... During the clemency hearing, um, Oakland County Prosecutor Jessica Cooper said, quote, Farrell's convictions arose from her direct and significant participation in the planning and execution of the brutal murder of her husband. Her desire was to end her boring and unsatisfying marriage in a manner that would ensure that she received a financial windfall from her soon-to-be late husband's estate. Allowing Farrell to recreate her past in an attempt to portray herself as the victim in this case does a disservice to those genuinely, genuinely battered women. Farrell is not a victim. She is a ruthless and calculating murderer, end quote. And again, she's, so this prosecutor is saying now that she was never abused and she's just making this up all these years later when, again, there was documentation at the time that he had been abusing her. Were there any, like, medical records also? Because I know you said the prolapses, like... I couldn't find anything. Did she ever go... Okay. I know it's an old case, so... But I wasn't sure, you know... If there was medical records showing, like, clearly she had things that would show that she was abused. I mean, I would think so. Like, that's not like a, oh, I had a few bruises. Like, a vaginal prolapse is something that I'm sure would be documented somewhere. But I couldn't find anything that specified. Yeah. But 
Carol Jacobson, who is the director of the Michigan Women's Justice and Clemency Project, um, said that Susan was denied clemency because she is suffering. She was suffering from dementia. Um, so she said that when they would ask her questions, that she wasn't completely clear or she had conflicting answers because she has dementia, and so she wasn't, yeah. you know, able to really articulate herself. And in response to the prosecutor's um, statement, Jacobson said that domestic violence cases were treated much differently 30 years ago, and this case likely wouldn't have been handled the same way today. I said Carol Jacobson, but I'm pretty sure it's Carl, because now my notes say he. So, <laughs> just Carl slash Carol, I don't know. Some... Somebody says that at the time, the knowledge of the effects of domestic violence weren't as well known and support systems and advocates were not in place like they are today. Um, So basically the Michigan Women's Justice and Clemency Project is saying like, look, in 1989, we didn't really recognize battered women's syndrome. We didn't acknowledge, you know, the effect that domestic violence can have on women and sentencing her to life in prison without the possibility of parole is extreme and wouldn't happen today. So on April 8th, 2020, at 74 years old, Susan Farrell dies at the Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility, and she was the first female prisoner to die of COVID-19 in the United States. Um, So she was found unresponsive in her cell, and her cellmate said that she had been alive like five minutes before they found her unresponsive. Um, And her body was tested post-mortem and confirmed positive for COVID-19. So they didn't even know that she had it until after she died. Yeah. And then after she died, 48 women at the facility were tested for COVID-19, and 38 came back positive. Wow, that is a lot. And nine of them were still pending as of April 10th, which is when this article was published, and I haven't found anything since then. So they had one negative, and then they had nine pending and 38 confirmed positive. And I mean, not to be that person, but I don't think that one is going to be negative for long. Exactly. (laughs) And 12 members of the staff of the prison also tested positive. Now, this information came from public defender Scott Heshinger's Twitter account. So I just want to put that out there that we don't know. This is what he says he spoke to her cellmates about. But Mm -hmm. again, we don't know how accurate this may be. Um, But he said that Susan was seizing in her cell for 45 minutes before they sent the prison healthcare staff in to assist. And he says that her cellmate was yelling for help the entire time and that they later put the cellmate in solitary confinement because of causing a disruption. Which is just disgusting because it's like she's trying to get her bunkmate help. Like, <laughs> Yeah, because she's literally seizing on the floor for 45 minutes and no one is doing anything. Yeah, it's disgusting. So yeah, so that is the tragic story of the arrest, conviction, and death after... 30 years in prison of Susan Farrell. So I don't know who did it. Yeah. I mean, it had to have been either her or her son. Like there's really no other possibility of who it was. They both blamed the other person. Maybe they were in on it together the whole time. Yeah. I just find it weird too, like that she's like, it was my son. It was hundred percent my son. Cause I feel like most parents are like, I'll take the fall for my kid. You know what I'm saying? Like they'll be like, I'll say I did it. Yeah. So It kind of, like, makes me wonder, too, being like, well, maybe he really did, but maybe it was her. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know. Like I said, she originally said it was the intruder and then changed her story after his girlfriend was like, no, it was definitely someone in the house. Like, I led you to the sledgehammer that her son dumped. Like, so. So, yeah. That's a 
it's a sad story. Yeah. Um, and side note, as I was reading all the details of this case, I was like, Law and Order SVU did this case because that's where my mind. <laughs> did could. they really? They did. It was so like. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure in the episode they were actually in on it together mm-hmm. and I don't think anybody got arrested because they said they couldn't charge them both because basically like the way the stories played out, like it was either one or the other. Yeah. And so because they couldn't prove that one of them did it, neither of them could go to jail, which I don't think that's accurate because I think there's plenty of other charges that you could find to... Yeah, you could be like... Like, you knew something. Yeah. Because that's a crime. Like, if you know something, <laughs> you yeah. don't say anything. But it was a mother and son murdering the husband with a hammer. <laughs> so it was, like... I mean, yeah, that's Super pretty... <laughs> specific. Yeah. 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 But I never realized that was based on a real case, which I guess most Lawnmower SVU episodes are, because we all know that real life is way worse than anything people can write, so... Yeah. And that's... It makes it more real, too, because they're like, well, I have to find something, like... I can't just pull something out of my ass and people believe it. Like, yeah. so if someone's like, this is unrealistic, I can just send them a link. <laughs> this You're happens. Like, Actually, here you go. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I also have a story that I'm going to tell. So nobody really sent me this case. Basically, I went to Google and I was like, prisoner dies. Oh, I put, because I wanted, I wanted some twists and turns. So I put wrongfully convicted prisoner dies of COVID Mm -hmm. and this is the case that came up and there's a lot of articles about it but a lot of them kind of just said the same thing so I just narrowed it down to three um Mm -hmm. so this is the story of Carlos Ridley and I got my information from a court listener article it was like a transcript of one of his appeals Mm -hmm. so it kind of detailed that's where I got most of the crime information a Toledo Blade article and a Fox News article. Okay. Can I add something super quick? Yes. Um, so I just Googled the Michigan Women's Justice and Clemency Project because I really wanted to know if it was Carol or Carl, and it is Carol. So I just want to okay. put that out there because I didn't know if I put the wrong um, name or the wrong pronoun. So it is Carol. Okay. Sorry. No, it's good. <laughs> I also took it back to the 80s. I also took it to the Midwest. So. Oh, On March 15, 1981, the severely beaten bodies of Sarah, 47, and Pelham, 51, Thurkill, and Latrina Jones, 4, were found inside a home in Lima, Ohio. Um, All three were dead. Um, And there was Melvin Jones, who was 8, and he was also found very beaten, um, but he was still alive. And he had sustained a lot of head injuries. So I saw a lot of reports saying that Latrina was like a foster child in their care and that Melvin was their grandson. Um, And so I don't know if it was like a coincidence that both of their last names were Jones Mm -hmm. or if there's something else. I don't know. That's just what I saw in the articles. (laughs) Um, So eventually police do arrest Carlos Ridley and Lawrence Daniel. Um, They were identified as suspects and arrested. And... On March 26, 1981, Ridley and Daniel were indicted on four charges, so three counts of aggravated murder and one count of attempted murder. Mm -hmm. And then both of them did plead not guilty. Um, And then on August 10th, a jury trial did did begin. Um, And throughout the entire trial, like, both were like, no, I'm innocent. Like, I had nothing to do with this. This wasn't me. And so basically the prosecution argument was that they were committed because the third kills had called the police after Lawrence Daniel had stolen from money some money from them um so that's kind of like their motive and then 
even at like Lawrence Daniels trial, like it sounds like it was a crazy trial. Like I wish I could find some transcripts, <laughs> but his attorney started accusing a star witness from the prosecution that he committed the murders. Oh, so sounds sounds pretty heated. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't have a lot of details on like the crime or the trial very much. Just kind of overview. Um, but on August twenty sixth, the jury did find them guilty of three counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. So they each got fifteen years to life on counts one through three, and then seven to twenty five years on count four. And it was all consecutive. It was basically fifty two years to life, and they both did file appeals and it the courts just kept upholding the sentence and the verdict like they just kept rejecting their appeals mm-hmm. so i don't really know all the details so we're going to jump forward to 2019 just gonna get in our little jump forward bus to go there so yeah. <laughs> jump forward bus <laughs> um, i like it thanks okay so on June. <laughs> On June 21st, 2019, Carlos Ridley did file an application for post-conviction relief for DNA testing. So he requested about 11 different items from the crime scene to be tested. And the court rejected this because they didn't believe the testing, like if it excluded Ridley's DNA on the materials, would have changed the outcome of his trial. Oh, okay. And this is 2019, y'all. This happened in 2019. So Ridley is like, um, clearly, if someone else's DNA is on these items, and mine is not, Mm -hmm. you have another, like, suspect. You have someone else who did this. That's called reasonable doubt. Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) he was, like, challenging this again to a different, like, appeals court. And Ridley is like, I just honestly believe this will prove my innocence. You know, like the evidence presented at trial was really weak. And so he's like, if I can get this DNA testing that shows my DNA isn't on there, you're going to have to give me another trial. Yeah. But then COVID-19 swept on over to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So um, just a little information also about Ridley's time in prison. Like he's spent four decades in prison and his time there has been very uh, eventful. So he's had colon and prostate cancer. Oh my gosh. And he's also wheelchair bound. Wow. So he has to be in a wheelchair at all times. Mm-hmm. And his daughter talked to him on April 30th. And he's like, yeah, I've been sick. Like these past two weeks have been horrible. Like I feel like I've aged 10 years. Mm-hmm. And she even said like on the call, it's like he could barely hold his head up. Wow. Like it was just mm-hmm. horrible. So then in late April of 2020 he was tested for the coronavirus but it came back negative and so what they were doing is any prisoners who tested negative they put them all in a room and any prisoners tested positive put them in a separate place Mm -hmm. on may 4th the appeals court did deny his appeal again and then on may 5th he was rushed to the hospital and he died from COVID 19. so it happened very quickly Um, I think this, like, the daughters were like, yeah, they called us, it was like a Tuesday afternoon, and they were like, oh, yeah, he's in the hospital, and, like, a few hours later, like, oh, he's dead. Just, like, so fast. So, and Ridley never knew the court's decision on whether they accepted his appeal or not, which they denied it, so maybe it's best he didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, The family does want to continue on to the Ohio Supreme Court, like, Mm -hmm. um, to try and clear his name even though he's dead, 
But still, I mean, if that's your loved one, yeah, if they are innocent, I can understand wanting it to be proven publicly, even though they're dead. Yeah, and there's a uh, Donald Castor with the Ohio Innocence Project has been working with him, and he's like, no, if I'm allowed, like, I'm continuing with this because mm-hmm. I think he's innocent. Yeah, and his daughter was like, he was just the whole time trying to get home to us, and it just didn't happen. And I did find, this broke my heart, there was like a change.org petition that she'd made um, back when Obama was still president. And she was like asking him and the governor, like, please just reopen this case. Like, please, like, he's been trying so long to get like a better trial. And it was closed. There wasn't a lot of signatures. Um, Yeah. So. That's so sad. I know. And I mentioned... Donald Castor with the Ohio Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he's going to try to keep it going and mm-hmm. go to the, the Ohio Supreme Court with it. Um, and he's like, I'm just so confident, like, they would have granted him the DNA testing. Um, yeah. And he's like, I honestly believed, like, this man was innocent. And he even said, like, people in the government in the United States are just too scared of prisoners to ever be compassionate towards them. Yeah. And so he's like, I just think they were like, nope. Like, you killed people, don't really care what evidence there was or wasn't. Like, too bad. Yeah, it's like once you're convicted, people are like, well, clearly the system is flawless, and so you must have done it, and so... Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't have too much more information on Ridley because there just really wasn't Mm -hmm. that much, but a lot of the articles had this information, which I think was just crazy. Um, (laughs) So in Ohio... Ohio has the country's highest per-prisoner coronavirus case rate and fifth-highest prisoner death rate. Wow. So, at the time the article was released, it was May 11th, um, 45 Ohio prisoners have died of coronavirus, and 27 of them were also housed like Ridley in Ohio's Pickaway Correctional Institution. Hmm. So, most of them have been in this Mm -hmm. one place. And then in Ohio, 4,300 inmates and nearly 500 staff members have tested positive. Wow. Just in Ohio. That's insane. In one state. (laughs) And also, at the time of this article, across the U.S., 14,000 prisoners had tested positive. Wow. As well as thousands of correctional officers. Which makes sense because obviously you can't social distance in a prison and a lot of the stuff that I was reading researching this as well, you know, talks about, um, like, they're not doing proper cleaning practices. I mean, they've never really done proper cleaning practices, but not doing it any extra now or anything like that. Um, also, you guys should check out the In the Dark podcast is doing a really good... Um... I have that in my notes. Whoops. Because <laughs> just... that's just what it made me think of with their um, interviews yeah. with the prisoner. So they're doing a really good uh, series, I guess, on... Um, different cultural impacts of coronavirus so they did one on churches and then prisons and anyway sorry yeah I'll let you get back to your story oh well i i just said shout it out i didn't oh, okay. like go too in depth <laughs> yeah and so donald castor did say like if you're a prisoner in ohio you are 10 times more likely to die of covid than if you're not because there's so many prisoners that's insane like in ohio that that's insane yeah. and honestly like these numbers just keep growing And so, you know, like Jacqueline mentioned, like in prison, you just have a lot of people in one area. And like with Ridley, like they tested him and it was negative. So they put him in a room with all the other negatives. But clearly Mm -hmm. 
he had COVID-19. So you're still exposing like everyone in that room who was negative. Then on May 20th, also there was an article from there um, that said two other inmates have died in Ohio facilities who were in current legal proceedings to try and prove their innocence. Mm. It's so devastating. Yeah, like Jacqueline mentioned, like the In the Dark podcast, they like briefly brought up also someone who was in prison who uh-huh. just couldn't get a court date. Yeah. Who like ended up getting it. And it's like there's so many like wrongfully convicted people like in the US who are just like are even more danger now mm-hmm. with this pandemic. Like it's crazy because it's there we there's clearly wrongfully convicted people in prison. Like yeah. there's no denying it. <laughs> and now they could just get COVID because they're there and it's just horrible. Yeah. And also look at all the people in jails awaiting trials right now that their trials have been postponed because of COVID. So they're stuck in this place longer because they can't afford to get out on bail and they may not even get convicted whenever they do go to trial. So you may have innocent people who, I mean, obviously you have innocent people who are also convicted, but you may have innocent people who haven't even gone to trial yet that are still in these same conditions. Yeah. And definitely go listen to the In the Dark all their stuff because everything they release is fantastic but their COVID series is really good um Mm -hmm. and also kind of on like the whole like awaiting trial thing I know the murder squad brought up how it's like yes they're releasing like the wrong types of prisoners almost (laughs) like Mm -hmm. like they're releasing like the domestic assault ones and stuff like that and so it's like well these people are gonna go and like terrorize the person who they were mm-hmm. arrested for because everyone's home, you know, where they are. Um, but it's still, like, these people who are on, like, nonviolent drug offenses just have to sit in jail. Yes. So it's, it's just a, it's a messed up system. And, mm-hmm. yeah, the did you listen to the most recent In the Dark episode? I don't think so. I don't think I've listened to it okay. yet. I won't say anything okay. <laughs> because it's infuriating. Okay. But I, I think it's in my queue, like, a few down from like where I'm at right now. I listen to mm-hmm. a lot of podcast guys and I strategically like listen to them in a certain order. So I mix like murder and non-murder with like tragic and not tragic to try to. <laughs> so yeah, basically I have trouble getting into the not tragic. <laughs> basically I listen to a lot of murder podcasts and the others, I listen to them occasionally, but they just don't hold my interest yeah. as much, I guess. Um, I think I just get really attached to a lot of the podcast hosts mm-hmm. on the murder ones. So, yeah, Courtney and yeah, I, I talked about this many. <laughs> the other day, and I went back and looked at like my app, and I was like, yeah, I listen to like eighteen on like a regular basis. <laughs> so, you know, I so I usually don't listen to them like the week they come out because I'm usually trying to get caught up on the older ones. Um, and I have like a very specific like Monday. I know which podcasts are <laughs> releasing a new episode, and I listen to them in a like specific order. Mm-hmm. And then like I know what day all my podcasts release stuff, yep. and like what I can listen to. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm like a podcast binger too. So when I like find one I like, I don't listen to anything else like mm-hmm. but that podcast. So I'm just like I binge everything they have, and then. I move on, so then it's like I don't really have anything. So yeah, listen to. I, I try to like mix it up. So like when I find a new one that has like you know a hundred episodes to get caught up on, like I'll listen to more of them obviously than any others. But I also don't want to get behind on all of the others while I'm getting caught up on that one. So you know it's all in my strategic queue planning. I really like that queue feature of the Apple Podcast app. So yeah, um, but also speaking of you know prisons. Um, 
releasing the wrong people, let's talk about the five to four vote to release the Green River Killer. So I oh oh I meant to bring this up. Um yeah, because I was thinking how like these people like can't get released and there was this um petition, I think it was, from the prisoners where like anyone over fifty should be able to like be released basically mm-hmm. because they're more at danger and basically included in that was the Green the Green River Killer. Yep. So like Gary Ridgeway who murdered a bunch of people yes. could have been released. But this guy who's trying to get DNA testing and this woman who clearly they're like, she shouldn't be in there for life are just sitting there. But thankfully one person voted against, yep. made it five to four. He's staying in prison. But it's crazy <laughs> that that was five to four for a man that murdered, I think, at least 30 sex workers, probably more. Yeah. I think that was, like, the number that they, like, definitively linked to him. We're, we're going to do him. He's on our list. We'll get to him. Yeah. But, yeah, because he basically would have just been looped in with a bunch of other prisoners trying to get released. And yeah, that would have been a huge fault in the system. <laughs> so. Yes. Yes. But then, you know, you have someone on... A life sentence for nonviolent drug offenses, like you said, who's still sitting there. So, yeah. you know, there's some, some work to be done in that system. It's really scary. I mean, this article came out, this podcast is being recorded still in May. I know you won't get it until, like, June something. <laughs> but, I mean, as of, like, two weeks ago, 14,000 prisoners in the U.S. Yeah. had tested positive. Yes. And that number's only going to grow. So, it's just, like... They're honestly a vulnerable population, too, because they just can't get out. And the whole point of the U.S. justice system is Mm -hmm. you probably will eventually get out as long as you don't do anything too horrific. And, you know, you're supposed to serve your time and then you get out. And now it's like, well, yeah, now you're just going to die in prison. (laughs) So it just sucks. It does. So we'll try to. I didn't look up like other countries prisoner. Mm -hmm. COVID. I should have looked that up. All right. Well, guys, I tried to real time look up the comparisons. Um, <laughs> and basically, it was just the impacts and a bunch of people escaping prison in a bunch of different countries because oh. of COVID and them not wanting to get sick. So I'm sorry. Send us those numbers if you want. Yeah. Um, I'm really sorry. I didn't do my due diligence. I just thought of that live on the podcast. So. We know we do have listeners in about, I think, 14 different countries right now. So if you are in one of those other countries, please notify us and let us know what's going on with the prison population or the general population with COVID in your countries, because we would love to know and be able to report on that as well. Yeah, definitely. We also, I have some ideas in the work of like some during the time of COVID and related to COVID, but not covid deaths Mm -hmm. or murders and stuff like that yes um just really have not been in a mental space to do that yet so (laughs) coming at you this one this one was hard too. like googling it and just seeing like how many prisoners and people who are like trying to fight for their innocence and stuff like it's really hard um Mm -hmm. but yeah sucks so we'll try to bring it back up now uh courtney what is your perk of the week okay my perk of the week so i mentioned last week on the podcast that my birthday was coming up again my birthday's long past at this point um so yeah so my birthday was on Wednesday and 
I was kind of feeling a little bummed out because I was like, okay, like I'm stuck in the house like I have been for like two months and all this. But like the day before, like Kevin's mom sent me like this whole edible arrangements basket and it had a balloon. It was really nice. Mm-hmm. And then Wednesday when I got off work, like someone knocked on the door and Kevin was like looking at me and I was like, I promise I did not order anything from Amazon. <laughs> like, like, but um, he just kept like being like, I'll get it. And I'm like, that's weird. Like Kevin never answers the door. (laughs) So, um, yeah. And so then I like opened my door and there was a cookie cake and a balloon and I could see Tiffany from six feet away. Don't worry. She was down the hall and it was so nice. And like Kevin was making fun of me cause I was crying, but it was, it was so nice. Um, cause the cookie cake was from Tiffany and Jacqueline, not to, not to not give Jacqueline credit, but I'm just not physically there. It's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but it was really nice to like, feel special on my birthday because yeah. it started just, I was like bummed out and I was like, whatever, it's just another day. It doesn't matter. So it was nice to be treated. It's like celebrations are yeah. so hard right now, you know, yeah, especially like, cause it's like two months in to like staying home and I'm just like, oh my God. I think we're like three months in now. Mm, depends on how you go by weeks. Like two and a half. Cause I know like I started staying home like March 12th, 13th. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're coming up on on three. Yeah. Sucks, guys. <sighs> but, you know, we'll get out there one day. I mean, I'm in Tennessee. I could go out if I wanted, but I just don't don't feel safe. So, yeah, not, we're, Courtney and I are not quite ready yet. So. Not quite ready, yeah. Um, but, Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? So, my perk of the week, Courtney, is apples on sandwiches. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> So this is my latest obsession. Um, I'm pretty sure food has been my perk of the week for at least half of the perk of the week. So I'm sure you guys know this by now. But um, so yeah, there's a burger place near us that has this delicious turkey burger that has Granny Smith apples on it. And then I get this one sandwich from this place that has like an apple chutney. And then yesterday we went to that place and I got this sandwich that has um, cheese and bacon and Granny Smith apples and honey mustard and it was so delicious and I just really like apples on sandwiches and that is my oh you got that from somewhere I thought you no made it. I got that from the sandwich shop on the road <laughs> okay because <laughs> she just texted us saying like I got like I got this whatever and I was like oh she getting bougie she making herself a sandwich would I ever Andrew might make me a sandwich like that I would never make myself True. a sandwich <laughs> <laughs> yeah and she did text us and say that and I want to give my uh, recent tip that I have figured mm-hmm. out, if you make a salad, if you like pickles, get your dill pickles and like cut them up and put it in the salad. It is a game changer. It is so good. I'm definitely going to try that soon because that sounds delicious. So yeah, that is our perks of the week. Um, we are also, just a reminder, running a contest. So once we reach 100 followers on Instagram and 50 reviews on Apple Podcast, we are going to do two giveaways, so one from each category. You guys will get a Caffeinated Crimes sticker and a pin and also a $10 gift card to a coffee shop of your choice. Um, and if you guys just automatically want a caffeinated crime sticker or a pin, you can go to patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes and pledge in our $10 a month tier, I think. Yes. 10 and up. Yes. 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 10 and up, you will get your um, 
exclusive caffeinated crimes sticker and pin mailed directly to you so if that's something that you're able to do and something you're interested in you can go there as well yeah and um to follow us on instagram that is caffeinated crimes pod um if you want to send us a nice or mean preferably nice email you can do that <laughs> at caffeinated crimes pod at gmail.com yep. and why don't you just go have a cup of coffee and don't commit a crime mm-hmm.